Every one of us brought something with us into church this morning. Sin, guilt, shame, condemnation, something from your past, something in your future, worry, doubt, fear, lust, anger, bitterness. Every single one of us brought something with us into church this morning. So how in the world do you enjoy church with all that baggage? The prophet Isaiah can help. And what he says about God is for what's going on in your heart today. And the prophet Isaiah said some pretty staggering words in his sermons. Here's one sample. It was our call to worship today. Let me read it again. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's pretty remarkable. If you can put your phone down for five minutes and meditate on it, that's pretty remarkable. God, who is high and lifted up and who inhabits eternity, let that sink in for a moment. He inhabits eternity. We've just got this little window of time that we live in. He lives in eternity. That God also dwells with the lowly, the contrite, in order to revive and renew and refresh them. Wow. Let's not yawn at that verse. Let's not be a church that says, yeah, 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 to that truth. Let's humble ourselves. And that's our part, to humble ourselves. And let's believe that God will do His part, which is to come and dwell with us and revive us. Prayer, then, is simply humbling ourselves and just getting low before the Lord, the Lord who inhabits eternity, and yet who willingly comes down to refresh, restore, and renew us. Rabbi Abraham Heschel said that prayer is more like a meteor than a rocket. I like that imagery, so let's just kind of play with it for a minute. Prayer is more like a meteor than a rocket. Here's what he said. Contact or prayer with him, with God, is not our achievement. It is a gift coming down to us from on high like a meteor rather than rising up like a rocket. Before the words of prayer come to the lips, the mind must believe in God's willingness to draw near to us and in our ability to clear the path for his approach. Such belief is the idea that leads us toward prayer. Think about that for a second. God's willingness to draw near to us, to draw near to people like us. This is why prayer is possible. This is why we have access to God, because He has come down to us. He has come down to us in the person of His Son, Jesus, because we could not send our rocket up to Him by our good works. He had to come down to us. Jesus had to live the perfect life that God expects every single one of us to live, but no one can pull it off. And He died the death that we all deserve to die and that we don't want to die, and He did that on the cross 
for our sins. And God raised him from the dead, and then he ascended on high like a rocket, where he sits at the right hand of God right now, and he's coming again in the clouds like a meteor. God has come down to us, people like us, because we could not make our way to him. And so prayer then is more like a meteor than a rocket. Because God in His grace comes down to us in all of His weight and in all of His power and in all of His glory and in all of His transcendence like a meteor. And it's a gift. It's grace. And so yes, we pray. Our words go up to Him like a rocket and maybe our prayers are really like those rockets in the path that went, never made it off the ground. Often prayer is that way, isn't it? Our words go up to Him like a rocket, but to pray is to believe that God is willing to listen to us, willing to answer us, willing to help us, willing to come down, pull up a chair, and just let, our, let us pour our hearts out to Him. And just listen. He really does love listening to us. He really does love us to talk with Him. And that makes prayer a beautiful thing, not a burden. So when God comes down, when God is willing to meet with us, that is actually an invitation from God. It isn't that we invite God into our lives per se. It's that He has invited us to enjoy Him and to enter into His joy. He has invited us to talk with Him, to commune with Him. And that changes prayer, doesn't it? Perhaps you see prayer as a burden. Perhaps you see prayer as boring and hard. Perhaps you see prayer as an invitation to fall asleep, as an invitation to take a nap. But prayer is a gift the gift of God Himself in all of His glory, in all of His power, in all of His transcendence, and in all of His weightiness. And so our big idea today is simply this. The invitation of Jesus is, share my joy. And prayer is our daily yes to that invitation. That's really what Jesus is getting at in John 16 when He says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Prayer is an invitation to joy. Prayer is an invitation that your joy might be full. Is that how you think of prayer? Notice Jesus said, you can ask in my name. Two times he says it here. Those are not just magic words that you can slap on a prayer to get what you want. What Jesus means when he says, ask in my name, is ask that my glory would be seen. Whatever you're praying about, ask that I would be glorified in whatever it is. So when you ask anything in the name of Jesus, you are asking that his name be glorified more than anything else. That honor would go to him, that thanks would go to Him. And when His glory is our desire, then our joy 
will be full. And that's how we share in His joy, when we seek His glory, when we seek His fame. So the invitation of Jesus is, share my joy. And prayer is simply just our daily yes to that invitation. And I get that big idea from John Stark's new book, The Possibility of Prayer, Finding Stillness with God in a Restless World. It's really good. Listen, if you struggle to pray, and who doesn't, get this book. It's an easy read, very winsome, light, encouraging. And so if you feel helpless about your prayer life, if you feel defeated about your prayer life and discouraged about your prayer life, get this book. It will make God look beautiful and feel very accessible. And when you begin to see God as beautiful as He is, and you begin to see Him as accessible, then you will want to pray. And prayer will then become less about your rockets trying to get off the ground flying up to Him, less about you working and trying so hard to pray, and more about you just marveling at the meteor that is shooting across the night sky and making its presence known, making its weighty, transcendent, powerful, glorious presence known. It's just so amazing when you think about it, that Jesus is willing to meet with us. He is inviting us to share in his joy, to share in what he is doing in this world. And prayer is just our, you betcha, yes, I will be there, Jesus. That's it, to his invitation. Prayer is just our, I'd love to, to his invitation. And that's what Paul is asking the Corinthian church to do in our verse today. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is going to ask the Corinthians to pray for him and to join God in what God is doing in his world. So look at chapter 1, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Well, recall what Paul just said in the previous verses, what we looked at last week. He is confident that God would deliver him again. He says it two times. Paul knows, I'm going to suffer more and more, but I also know that my God will deliver me. This was his hope. That's what we saw last week. So why does Paul then ask the Corinthians to help him by praying that God would deliver him? If he is so confident that God will deliver him, that he writes it two times... And if he thoroughly rests in the sovereignty of God, then why does Paul ask the Corinthians to pray that he would be delivered? Is that a contradiction? I'm confident that God will deliver me. Please pray for me. Does that sound like a contradiction? Connect the dots with verse 10 and 11. He will deliver us. He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. Why does Paul speak of his hope? that God would deliver him, and then turn around and ask the Corinthians to pray? Answer, because Paul knows that God uses means to accomplish his end. Paul knows that God will use the prayers of the Corinthian church to deliver him. And so Paul would agree with Alec Motier, who said, here is a mystery of prayer. It is a means by which the Lord brings eternal counsels to pass. 
God uses our prayers to accomplish His eternal purposes that He determined and ordained in eternity past and to bring them to fruition in this world. And that's what verse 11 is all about. So let's take a quick look at the flow of prayer here in verse 11. Number one, you'll see that Paul asks the Corinthians to pray for me. He says, hey, y'all pray for me. And then number two, the Corinthians will ask Jesus to help Paul. Hey, Jesus, please help Paul. And then God responds to the Corinthians' prayers by sending down the blessing to Paul. That's number three. And then number four, Paul will respond to the Corinthians in the future and say, hey, y'all, God answered your prayers. And then the Corinthians, point number five, will give thanks to the Lord for answering their prayers. And then ultimately, God will be glorified. Thanks is given to God, and so he is the one who is glorified. And Paul knows that this pattern that we see all through the Bible, and we see it all the way throughout our lives, it's like Psalm 50 verse 15 is in Paul's head here, which says this, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. That's the Old Testament version of 2 Corinthians 1.11. We experience suffering and hardship and trial, and then we call on God, and He delivers us, and then we glorify Him. So Paul is saying here, I know God will deliver me again, but y'all got to help. Cry out to God. He'll deliver me, and then you and others will give thanks and glorify God. So this is just Psalm 50 stuff right here in 2 Corinthians 1. This is the pattern When you read the Old Testament, it's the pattern of Moses and company, Paul, the Corinthians, you, me, every disciple that has ever followed Jesus. Here's the pattern. Trouble comes into our lives. We pray God into the trouble. God delivers, and then he gets the thanks, and he gets the glory. So, that's the pattern. Don't freak out the next time trouble comes your way. Remind yourself that this is the pattern of discipleship. Number one, trouble comes. Number two, we pray God into the trouble. Number three, God delivers in his time and in his way. And then number four, God is glorified. And that's the pattern. And so we have to learn, and I'm, I'm still learning. You probably already know this, but I'm still learning to stop seeing suffering and hardships and trials as barriers that we need to somehow get past and escape. That's how I see trouble when it comes into my life. This is a barrier I need to get past. It needs to be in my rearview mirror. We need to learn to stop seeing suffering and hardships and trials as barriers that we need to somehow get past and escape them. Instead, we must start seeing them as an invitation from God, an invitation from God to pray him into the trouble, an invitation from Jesus to enjoy him while we're praying, and then as an invitation to share in his joy and to be involved in his story and what he is doing in this world. Now, we don't call evil good. We've talked about that before when we say we need to start seeing suffering and hardship as something to get past. We don't call evil good, but if you're like me, I see trials and mild irritations as something to get past so that I can have an easy life. 
That's what I want. Instead, I'm learning to see them as an invitation from God to pray and to know Him more and to enjoy Him more and to be involved with what He's doing in that situation for His glory in the world. And so we pray God into our trouble and then we enter into His joy. So understand this then, Grace. Suffering and hardship are not barriers. They are the place, the spot where you can share in the joy of Jesus as you commune with Him in prayer. It's where you learn to cry out to God and He delivers you in His way and in His time and then He gets the glory. Suffering and hardship are not, own, are not just things to fear and dread, but they are also new and exciting places and spots where God will meet with you. And you can share in the joy of communion with God. But it takes a changed perspective to see these things, doesn't it? Only the Holy Spirit can give us this perspective. Because when things are going well in our life, we typically aren't seeking God in prayer as much as when something difficult comes, right? Then we start crying out to God. So they can become places where we enjoy God and seek His face more. Because when things are going well, we typically aren't on our knees crying out to Him. Only the Holy Spirit can change this perspective. And so prayer is what we do in between trouble and deliverance. Prayer is in the middle, between trouble and deliverance. It's what we do after suffering and hardships and trials have come into our lives before the deliverance comes. But notice how Paul is expecting trouble and hardship. But he's also expecting God to deliver him through the helpful prayers of the Corinthians. I don't think this way. This is foreign to me. When I suffer, I have pity parties. I mope. I turn inward and become self-absorbed. And I don't think, how will God use this? For people's good and for his glory. Instead, I mope and I think, why is this happening to me? Don't I ever get a break? Nobody else is dealing with this. Why me? God, what are you doing? I need the Holy Spirit to change my thinking and to learn to expect and to anticipate that God is going to do wild and crazy things through what I suffer. I need the Spirit to help me remember that he has massive goodness stored away from me. I need reminders that Jesus has secret treasures of goodness that I am not aware of, hidden away, ready to use on my behalf. In my suffering, I need to relearn to stick my neck out and trust Jesus. No matter what I see with my eyes, I need to learn to expect God to surprise me with his goodness. And one way that God will surprise me and one way that he will surprise you with his goodness is through the prayers of others. God uses the prayers of His people to bring about His will, to bring about His kingdom, to bring about His eternal purposes that He has already ordained in eternity past. Could God do it all? Well, of course. He's all-powerful. He could do it all Himself. God invites us to join Him and His mission to share in His joy. And so what he does is he just opens his office door and he says, come on in. We're invited to help. Not that we're helping God because he doesn't really need our help, does he? 
But we're invited to help others by praying for them. That's what Paul is saying here. It's kind of like when a dad or a mom let their children help them with some task, right, parents? The parent can obviously do the task, but because of the relationship with their children, they let their children help them. They work together, they spend time together, and the relationship is deepened as the task gets done. And so we can join God in seeing His kingdom come, in seeing His eternal purposes come to pass in this world by praying for help to come to others. And so why pray? Because prayer matters. Because God uses our prayers. He really does use our prayers. Notice, too, that Paul is asking the Corinthians to do something that we Westerners, we American Christians struggle to do, and that's pray. And if we're honest Christians, which is a good adjective to describe a Christian, right? If we're honest Christians, we will admit that we struggle to pray. Paul Miller highlights this in his book, A Praying Life. He says, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless, as if we are wasting time. Every bone in our bodies screams, get to work. When we aren't working, we are used to being entertained. Television, the internet, video games, and cell phones make free time as busy as work. When we do slow down, we slip into a stupor. Exhausted by the pace of life, we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. If we try to be quiet, we're assaulted by what C.S. Lewis called the kingdom of noise. Everywhere we go, we hear background noise. If the noise isn't provided for us, we can bring our own via smartphone. Even our church services can have that same restless energy. There is little space to be still before God. We want our money's worth, so something should always be happening. We are uncomfortable with silence. One of the subtlest hindrances to prayer is probably the most pervasive. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. Because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it is quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. As a result, exhortations to pray don't stick. So if you're looking for another good book on prayer, check out Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. It too is an easy read and it's full of hope. And isn't that what you're looking for in a good book? Okay, so I've got an idea for us. Let's be a church that doesn't mind the quiet. Like what if we just took a minute to be quiet right now? For some of us it would be like, pulling the flesh off my bones, pastor. That's one reason when we were passing the offering was that we'd have that moment of silence to just slow down. Let's be a church that doesn't mind the quiet. Let's be a church that makes time to pray. Let's believe that prayer is necessary. And let me make a plug for two opportunities that we have to pray as a church. You can join us on Sunday nights here at the church in the education building at 5.30. And you can either pray in the chapel or you can walk the church property and pray like some people do. Or you can join us on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. in the education building in the chapel. So 
The invitation is there. The invitation of Jesus is, hey, y'all, come share my joy. And prayer is our daily yes to that invitation. So you can say yes to the invitation from Jesus by joining your church family on Sundays at 5.30 or Wednesdays at 6 p.m. And you can come and share in his joy. He's inviting you. He told me to tell you that, that you're invited tonight at 5.30. And if you come, your joy will be full if you ask things in his name. Listen, we don't want to waste this historic moment in our world, right? Will we numb ourselves with our iPhones and Netflix or will we pray? Will we seek God's face and share in his joy or binge watch something? Let's pray. Let's start thinking about how much we pray, how that is more important than how much money we have in the bank or how many people attend church. I mean, what would churches look like if instead of people saying things like attendance is down, the offering is low, what if instead they said prayer is down? We don't pray enough here. Our prayer meetings are low. What if the litmus test for a failing church was not loss of members and reduced offerings, but instead it became fewer prayer meetings and low attendance at said prayer meetings? If prayer became the litmus test, guess what? I think revival would come. I think God would knock our socks off. Why? Because God loves to see and hear his children praying. When we cry out to God, help, 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 He loves to answer that prayer. It's his favorite prayer to pray. Help. It's how you became a Christian. You said, help. I need a savior. God loves to see our faces turned up to him in prayer. In fact, the Greek language here in verse 11 actually says that. It says, so that many faces will give thanks. Paul is saying that many faces will be lifted up in thanksgiving to God because God answered the Corinthians' prayers for Paul. So faces here is so personal. I love it. I don't know why some translators leave that word out. It's the same word that's going to pop up again in chapter 3 when it says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. It's the same word he's going to use later in chapter 4. Verse 6, where he says, Light has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I don't know why the translators leave this out. A couple of them capture it. But they do. But God sees faces. He sees individuals when we pray. We're not some blob entity. Grace Baptist Church is praying tonight. He sees faces, individual faces. He sees your face when you pray. He sees the sadness and the frowns and the tears and the smiles. He sees you. How could it be otherwise? So let's continue to be a church that gets low before the Lord and turns our faces up to Him in prayer. Let's be a church that can only explain our success and our growth as God graciously answering our prayers. Let's be a church that is quick to say that if anything good happens here at Grace, it's not because of our swagger, it's not because of our gifts, it's not because of our knowledge, it's not because of our degrees, it's not because of our pastoral staff or our ministries. 
let's always be quick to say that all the good that we experience here at Grace is because of grace. Let's take our first name seriously. How about that? To say if any good happens here, well, God gave us a reminder, it's our first name, so that we wouldn't boast in us. It's all grace. In fact, that's what Paul says here in verse 11. He calls it the blessing granted, or literally, the word here for blessing is the Greek word gracious gift. And a few translations capture this. The Net Bible says, and you also join in helping us by prayer so that many people may give thanks to God on our behalf for the gracious gift given to us through the help of many. Or the Holman Christian Standard Bible. While you join in helping us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. So if God delivers Paul through the prayers of the Corinthians, he knows it's all of grace. It's a gift, a free gift that you didn't earn, you didn't deserve. In his commentary in 2 Corinthians, Murray Harry says, divine deliverance, when it occurs, is always an undeserved blessing, but in some mysterious way, it is intimately related to human intercession. So divine deliverance is an undeserved blessing It's an undeserved gift that comes in mysterious ways through human prayers. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Some of us were talking about this on Friday night. Do you know what, Charlie, does this seem like a contradiction? God's sovereignty and yet man is responsible? You know what Charles Spurgeon said about that? Because people talk about, well, we need to reconcile God's sovereignty with human responsibility. And Spurgeon said, you don't have to reconcile friends. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are friends. You don't have to reconcile them. It's a mystery. So in other words, when God answers our prayers, it is one of the mysterious ways that he showers us with undeserved gifts, and it often comes through our prayers. So think about that. When God answers our prayers, that's one of the mysterious ways that he showers us with undeserved blessing and goodness, and he often showers us through prayers, our own prayers and the prayers of others. So it's a gift of grace when God answers our prayers. So if we see success here in this church, it's only because of grace. Verse 11 is in the Bible to remind us That it's all of grace. It's not because of us. It's all because Jesus is just simply good to us. John Stark says in his book on prayer that I mentioned earlier, a life with God calls for unhurried time that is driven not by accomplishments or tasks, but by love and communion. Nothing is earned or achieved in prayer. God gives everything as a gift to those who are still and vulnerable enough to receive it. Prayer is the daily habit of opening your mouth wide for all the fullness of God. That's a pretty good description of prayer, isn't it? The daily habit of opening your mouth wide for all the fullness of God, for all of His goodness to come into your life. And so churches that truly succeed in ministries are ones that are still before the Lord. Ones who are like little birdies chirping with their mouths open, waiting for the mama bird to give them a worm. Just there chirping, 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 chirping. 
Feed us with your goodness. Churches that succeed are the ones who are vulnerable enough to receive God's goodness. Churches that succeed know that they are desperate and they want no success apart from dependence on the Spirit of God. Listen, we do not want to succeed here at Grace because we have all these strategies for ministry and because we've read all the leadership books that are out there. We want to succeed in life and ministry here at Grace because we are desperately dependent on the Spirit of God because we get still before Him and are vulnerable like little needy birds chirping. I don't want to succeed any other way. That's it. We only want success here at Grace that is birthed out of dependence on the Holy Spirit and that's birthed out of prayer. Think about this. If everything was safe and we never needed Jesus, is that really success? If everything was safe, we had $10 million in the bank, great church staff, everything taken care of, no issues. If everything was safe and we never needed Jesus, is that really success? If we can do ministry without feeling vulnerable and without needing the Holy Spirit, if we can do ministry without praying, is that really kingdom of God success? Some churches think so. Some churches and church staff is... We want to get to the place where we have so much money in the bank, we don't have to worry about it. We want to get to that place to where everything is just running smooth, and that's success. Lots of people, lots of money, no need. If we can reach a place where we're never in a pickle and never desperate for the Holy Spirit, is that really success? I don't think so. Paul was in a pickle, and he expected to be in more pickles, and he expected God to deliver deliver him from said pickles. So he asked the Corinthians to pray. Therefore, I'm learning to be like this, that I don't mind it when we find ourselves in a pickle here at Grace. I'm learning to embrace the pickle now. I'm learning. Bring on the pickles Because when we find ourselves in a pickle, it keeps us needy and it humbles us and it reminds us of a truth that we may have forgotten that we are desperate and we can do nothing without the Holy Spirit. And it knocks the swagger out of our step and it makes us pray. So this word here, you, this phrase, you must help us by prayer that Paul says in verse 11, that's basically saying, I'm in a pickle I need you to pray. Listen, y'all, following Jesus is exciting. Paul is showing us here in verse 11 that ministry is all about being in pickle after pickle after pickle after pickle. Ministry in church life is all about experiencing need after need after need after need. And so discipleship is pickle, 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 and need, need, need. And that's it. And it's about coming to grips with your neediness and then crying out to Jesus and then watching Jesus show up in his way and in his time and seeing him show up like a meteor in his power and glory and transcendence and weightiness. I, I want to see that. I want to see God's glory. That's why Moses said, show me your glory. He didn't say, give me more money for the bank account. He said, show me. I want to see God's glory here. I want to see him show up in his transcendence and his weightiness and in his power 
Because that is what will change us and transform us as we, I just read it, as we behold the glory of the Lord. Our faces, with an unveiled face, we're looking at the glory of the Lord, the power, the transcendence of this God that we worship, and we are changed. I want that. Pickle, pickle, cry out to God, see His glory, be changed. I'll take that any day over. We have so much money in the bank and 10 services and everything is perfect. I want glory here. I want weightiness here because I want to change. So let's get comfortable being dependent as a church. Let's get comfortable being in pickles because it will be this way every single day until Jesus returns. It's who we are. And so we might as well embrace it. I mean, what are the options, okay? Try to do it in our own strength. Try to do it in our own wisdom, plan, strategize, read a bunch of leadership books and try to pull this off in our own strength and in worldly wisdom. Or we could embrace who we are as weak, dependent people and just simply ask Jesus to help us and then sit back and watch him do what only he can do. Sure, it will be uncomfortable. Being quiet before the Lord will seem like a bad plan. It will seem like an eternity. And you're like, we just started at 5.30. I wonder what time it is. 5.33? Feels like we've been praying for two hours. Sitting still is hard. You're going to want to reach for your phone. It will feel like we can do more than just sitting here quietly talking to God. Surely we can accomplish more. But it will usher in God's kingdom. And people will be blessed. And God will get all the glory. And after all, isn't that what life is all about? God's glory? So when we pray, we're opening the door for what life is all about. For all the glory to go to Jesus. Tell me again how praying is a bad thing or something that we should avoid. The invitation of Jesus is share my joy. I'm not stingy. You can have all that you want. Prayer is our daily yes to that invitation. Paul believed these open-ended invitations from God in Scripture and in the Psalms. Here's a sample. Psalm 50 verse 15, I read it earlier, and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Psalm 91 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Paul believed those verses. Do these verses make you yawn? God has invited us to pray and he's promised to deliver and answer us. Perhaps we've just grown too accustomed to the fact that God hears our prayers and we aren't struck by it anymore. Maybe we should be frequently baffled that God listens to us. Maybe we should slow down enough and be awestruck that God hears and answers our prayers. Sadly, I think phrases like, when he calls to me, I will answer him. And phrases like, you also must help by prayer. Sadly, I think they no longer startle us. We don't seem to be shook by this anymore. We should be shocked by those phrases. Psalm 91.15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. We should be shocked by that. 2 Corinthians 1.11, you also must help by prayer. That should shock us. 
You might want to write those two phrases on a post-it note and put it on your bathroom mirror or your refrigerator so that you get shocked by that truth frequently. We should be in shock right now. We're just not as startled as we should be. I'm not. But the authors of Scripture, like David and Paul, they never take prayer for granted. They never lose sight of the fact that God hears our cries. Perhaps one reason we don't pray as much as we should is because we take it for granted that God hears. Perhaps we think, well, that's just God's job description. Of course he listens to us. It's his job dummy. He has to do it. But the authors of Scripture never seem to get over this idea that God listens to them and answers them and delivers them. And so they don't regard prayer as something routine. They think of it as miracle. It's a miracle. And we should too. They believe that it's all grace, a gift. John Stark opens and closes his book that I mentioned on prayer with these words. I pray you take them to heart. He says, a vibrant prayer life is possible for you. I know it may not seem this way, but the whole thing is rigged for triumph. Isn't that good? Prayer is not rigged for failure. I think we think that way. It's rigged for triumph. So you can have a vibrant prayer life. Do you think those words don't go together? Vibrant prayer life? Is that possible? It is. Those words go together. You can have a vibrant prayer life. And then he ends his book by saying this. It's no overstatement to say that the most transformative thing you can do is to begin to spend unhurried time with God on a regular basis for the rest of your life. It's no overstatement to say that the most transformative thing you can do is to begin to spend unhurried time with God on a regular basis for the rest of your life. You want to change? Do you hate who you are, how you are? Do you want to change? You behold the glory of the Lord. Unhurried time. Listen, Jesus loves you. He lived a perfect life for you. He died a brutal, bloody death on the cross for you. He paid the penalty for your sins. God raised him from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God where he intercedes for you right now. Jesus prays for you right now. Wow. And he wants to commune with you, to spend unhurried time with you. He wants you to share in his joy. So take these words to heart. And let them allure you to him. The most transformative thing you can do is to begin to spend unhurried time with God on a regular basis for the rest of your life. Let's be a church that does that. What exciting things await us, Grace. A vibrant prayer life is possible. Why? Because Jesus is involved. Because prayer is more like a meteor than a rocket. It's because God is here. Because God has come down to us in all his power and glory and weight and transcendence. And he is inviting you to just talk with him. To bring what you brought into church this morning to him. Your sin, your guilt, your shame, your lust, your anger, your worry, your bitterness. And to just give it to Jesus. 
You know what our biggest sin is? It's not the lust and the pride and the bitterness and anger. Here's our biggest sin. It's not believing that God is as good as he says he is. Not believing that what he says about himself and his word is real. We're just so afraid to believe it. Believe it today with all your heart. Just say, I'm going to believe it. He's as good as he says. I'm going to open wide my mouth like the psalm says and just let him pour out his goodness into me. When you begin to believe that God is as good as he says he is, you will want to be with him. Let's be that kind of church. Let's pray. Father, I struggle to pray. We all do at different times. We want to be a church that gets still before you and quiet and not only talks to you, but hears your spirit speak to us through your word and in our hearts. Help us to be a church that doesn't waste this historic moment, but to slow down and to just pray, to talk with you. May we focus less on getting our prayers right and less on getting our prayers off the ground and let's focus on your weightiness and your transcendence and your glory and may we be changed. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.